0: church. It is great to be with you. Uh, to those in the room with me, to those who are watching or listening online, those of you who are with us through podcasts, so glad that you guys are part of this as well. Uh, my name is Jeremy, the lead pastor here, and uh, we are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And so, so glad that you are part of this with us. If you would, get your Bibles out. If you know the drill, we use them every week here, and so I encourage you, if you got a physical analog Bible with you, uh, grab that out. We're in the book of Philippians, chapter. 4. And if you've got a Bible app on a phone, it's okay to use your phone in church as long as you're using it for the Bible. So I'll trust you. Uh, You can use it for the Bible, but uh, you can get a a Bible for free. You can download an app. I encourage you to take advantage of that as well. Uh, We're going to be in Philippians 4 in just a little bit, so I want you to have a chance to turn there and read along with us. Now, I want to let you know, uh, you've already heard about Easter, uh, but here's the two things I want to encourage you. Number one, plan your Easter around this experience with your family. Uh, This is one of those, it's like, oh, things are going to get busy, and then we have that. Figure out, hey, this is the service our family's going to be at. And again, I'm going to plead with you, church, uh, let's make room for guests at the peak times, which will be the 10 o'clock, the 1130, uh, would you please consider the Thursday night, the Saturday night? That would help us make room for others. We want to encourage you to please join us in doing that. And then secondly, invite someone with you. Uh, This is one of two times of the year. People are not surprised, they're not weirded out when you say, hey, would you like to go to church? Not just hey, would you like to go to that church that I go to? How about, would you like to go with me? Would you like to meet us there? Would you like to sit with us? Uh, Invite them to that experience, that will be huge. I love when I hear people's story, and, and I often tell, you know, or ask people who are new, I said, hey, how did you find out about us, What you know, what's been going on? And, and so often I either hear, I started coming at Christmas, or I started coming at Easter. This can be a transformational moment. And we are celebrating the thing that all of this is built on. This is not built on the Bible. This is not built on tradition. This is not built on the church. This is built on the fact that Jesus really died and really resurrected back to life, and because Because of that, amen. Because of that, we are here. Let's celebrate it together. Please make this a priority. And like you've already heard, uh, we're gonna do a special offering. So we'll do a regular offering, allows us to do the ministry we do each and every week here. Uh, But then if you've been with us, you know we do a special offering at Christmas and at Easter. At Christmas time, that goes above and beyond to help the ministry that we do here. And then at Easter, we do a special offering that goes outside. So this is not to us, but we could not think of a better organization right now to partner with. Now, again, you saw that video, you're going, okay, uh, we're addressing foster care issues, why? Let me just remind you the stats, and these rock me, and this is what I go, yeah, let's go be the church. So again, here are the numbers. Last year in Oregon, more than 11,645 children spent time in foster care. Let me ask you this. What's the right number of kids to spend time in foster care? So that is way, way Too many. Now, of that, 62% of those kids experience multiple foster home placements. Imagine that's you. Imagine that's your child that is not knowing what home is and is moving around and around and is in the midst of this system. There are nearly 7,500 children in foster care at any given time. And as you've seen, the problem is when it comes to how many homes do we have, there are only 3,847. And here's what I believe, that the church is uniquely equipped to solve this problem. Okay, So let's be the church. And again, I would encourage you, become a foster parent. It will rock your world. But if you're going, look, I can't even consider that right now. Join us as we partner together with Embrace Organ, an incredible organization that is tackling this full on. And so we're giving you a couple weeks notice so you can be planning. Again, we're going to do our regular offering. That is what allows us to do our ministry. And then we're going to encourage you to go above and beyond and sacrificially give to be a part of this with us. So that's coming up at Easter. Now today I'm excited. We are going to look at what is one of the most misquoted verses in all of the Bible. And so we're going to go into this with a little bit of trepidation, because some of you, I'm going to step on your toes. And I love you, and we're going to be friends throughout all of it. Uh, So just let's just have open hands here as as you hear this, and we're going to dive into an incredible verse today. And and this is a misquoted verse, and here's what I'll tell you. This summer, I'm going to give you a little preview. We're going to spend a whole series going through misquoted verses of the Bible because there are so many. And here's what I will tell you, and you're going to see this today, that when you dive into, okay, here's how we quote it. Here's what it probably actually means. What I hope you walk away from is you go, oh, it's way better than I thought. Not, oh, man, I had something great and Jeremy ruined it, right? That's not the goal. The goal is that we go, wow, I had no idea how good this could be. And that's what I hope you experience today and obviously through that series in the summer. Now the verse I'm talking about is Philippians 4.13. If you have been a Christian for a long time, you probably know this verse, you have quoted this verse. Even if you're not a Christian, you have probably heard someone quote this in one context or another. Uh, let me share a couple of popular translations of this verse so we can all understand uh, the idea. It says this, I can do all things Through him who strengthens me. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Or, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You get the idea. The point is, what is not to love about a verse like this? I can do it all. And so we take this, we pluck it right out of the book of Philippians, we put it on bumper stickers, on shirts, on whatever, and we go, yes. I love this verse, and and you can understand why. It's easy to see what an inspirational, motivational verse this is. The challenge is that when we quote it, we don't quote it in context. Now, context is what is, is Paul saying before and after this that gives us an understanding of what this verse is. But who needs a little context when you've got a verse that's this Amazing. And so let me show you some of the ways that this verse gets used. Uh, Evander Holyfield, the great boxer, would autograph things with Philippians 4.13, right underneath it, because that just made sense. Uh, if you're a Tim Tebow fan, uh, the great Tebow, right, he's got on his eye patches Philippians 4.13, that's how he does what he's doing on the field. There's even MMA fighters, John Jones, if you notice, has a tattoo, Philippians 4.13, because if you want to beat people up for Jesus, then man, <laughs> this is your verse, right? Like, Philipp- I can beat you up through Christ, who gives me strength. There's even a meme that I found. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something when the Bible says you can do all things through Christ. That's right. Don't you dare tell me what I can't do. I can do anything because of Jesus. There's one seminary professor calls it the Superman verse. And you can understand why, because this verse gives us carte blanche to claim whatever we want and say, yes, Jesus is behind me, and he supports this. And there are plenty of Bible teachers that will go along with this, that will will tell you this, because what better— More encouraging message could there be than the way we often quote this. Now, I want to share with you the way one very popular pastor and and author, uh, the way he describes this verse, and again, this sums up the way most of us quote Philippians 4.13. It says, most people tend to magnify their limitations. They focus on their shortcomings, but scripture makes it plain. All things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It's possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It's possible to overcome that obstacle. It is possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how it will all take place. You may not have a plan, but all you have to know is that if God said you can, you can. And we go, that's right, pastor. That's what I can do. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So you want to dunk a basketball, but you're five feet five? You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You wanna get a promotion, get that corner office at work? You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You wanna get ripped in the gym? You can do all things, seriously. Almost every time you see this on a tattoo, it's on a muscular man. Let me show you another example. There's plenty of them, right? Philippians 4.13, right? Like this is the image. I got my muscles from Jesus. That is how I got this, right? You want that girl to notice you or to finally say yes. When you ask her out on a date, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You want your company to be wildly successful. You can do all things through Christ, you want to be the first person on Mars. You can do all things through Christ, who gives you strength. Now, hopefully, even if this is like your life verse, hopefully, you're going, yeah, maybe we got a little carried away with that one. Maybe we we got really excited. We really liked it, and, and maybe we need to like revisit. Like, what, what was Paul saying? What what was going on here? Uh, what what are, we, what are we supposed to take from this verse? Is it possible that God would indeed help you do any one of those things? Sure. God can do whatever he wants to do. And if God decides he's going to help you dunk a basketball on your 5-5, that's an awesome way to go. But is that the point of Philippians 4.13? Is that the point Paul is making? Now, let me make you a little bit uncomfortable as we get into it. I would suggest that for most of us, the way that we use Philippians 4.13 is actually used to defend our Selfishness. We know what we want, and so this is a way we basically say, whatever I want is what God wants for me. And I can quote a verse to you that proves that, that backs that up. So when I tell you what I want and you go, oh, I don't know about that, I can quote this and go, look, I could do this because of Jesus. And I would suggest that if we're using it to justify our own selfishness, we have completely missed the point of what Paul is actually saying in this passage. Now with that in mind, I want to read to you what I would suggest is probably the most helpful translation of this. Uh, this is the NIV version, uh, and so let me read Philippians 4:13 in the NIV version. It says, "I can do all this through him who gives me strength." Now the reason I like this version uh, is because you ask the question, What's the this? Uh, This does not stand by itself. This does not make a good bumper sticker or a good t-shirt because it needs some context. It needs a follow-up question. What is Paul referencing when he says this? And that is why I would suggest it's a great translation of this verse because this verse should not be read outside of the context in which Paul is making it. And so we have to ask the question, what is the this that Paul's talking about? I can do all this? What? What have you been talking about, Paul, that you're now making this bold statement? And so let's look together at the context of what comes before, uh, of the train of thought that Paul is in. So when you get to verse 13, you go, oh, got it. We've been following you up to this idea. And so we're going to begin in verse 10. And I want to look at each of the preceding verses of this and paint a picture so that when we revisit verse 13, hopefully you go, Oh, I see that a bit differently now. Now, Philippians chapter four, verse 10 says it like this. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, the word that he's using here for renewed is an interesting word. It's a word that appears nowhere else in the New Testament except this one passage. It's not a common word. It's a very unique word that Paul is using to describe the concern that the church in Philippi, these believers, that they have for him. He's saying, you had a concern for me. You weren't able to do anything about it for whatever reason, but you have renewed it. You have gone back to it. You have revisited it. You have culture, you know, cultivated it. And because of that, he now experiences their support. It's the image of a tree that is flourishing. It is thriving because all the conditions are right. And Paul is implying here that they have financially supported him. And so these believers in Philippi had a concern for Paul. They had relational equity with him. Because remember, he planted their church about 10 years prior. And because of that relationship, when they hear about Paul's struggles, when they hear about Paul's needs, they're going, look, we're going to be the church. We'll step up for you. We'll take care of you. And so now they are doing that. And Paul is saying, I rejoice that you are renewing your concern for me. But he does it in a very strange way. Now, I want you to imagine that you were one of the believers in Philippi. You had sacrificed. You sold something valuable. You took a chunk of your income, and you put it aside so that Paul would be taken care of. And and so now you're hearing back from Paul, and, and, and instead of, you know, whatever you might expect, you hear Paul say, I rejoice greatly. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He never says thanks. Never says, thank you so much. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to be one of those believers, I'd be like, yeah, but like say it, Paul. Like say what you're supposed to say because we 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 sacrificed. We gave to you and he doesn't say thanks. He says I rejoice in the Lord that you renewed your concern for me. Now, some scholars have referred to this as Paul's thankless thanks. He's thanking them but not using the words thank you, not not actually saying that. Now, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. How does that feel? How does it feel if you were the one of the the ones that sacrificed greatly? And then you hear talk about how he rejoices greatly. He he doesn't say thank you. He just says, I rejoice in this. You you might go, well, hey, Paul, come on. I mean, like, be grateful. Like, why are you not saying that now? Is this because Paul doesn't know gratitude? I don't think so at all. I think Paul is showing us something much bigger than the way we think about this. See, we often expect if I'm going to give something, uh, whoever is the recipient owes me something, even if that is a thank you and a certain kind of thank you. Have you ever done something for someone? You gave them a gift, you, you, you extended yourself, and there was not a thank you, and, and you felt a little bit bothered by that? Yeah. And what you realize is that, that whatever degree you feel bothered is you doing that gift for you. You doing whatever you said, it's actually for you. And again, we go, well, yeah, but that was lopsided. All I asked for was a thank you. But even that thank you is some expectation you have. And in church world, here's what this looks like. Um, I give my money to the church. Therefore, you owe me. Therefore, my opinion matters more than someone who doesn't give. I hear this on a regular basis. Oh, we're givers. So when I tell you what I want, you better listen to me. It's the idea of I am owed something if I give something. And Paul absolutely goes around this. And Paul's like, I'm not playing that game at all. I rejoice greatly. I don't say thanks. I rejoice greatly. And we go, okay. Paul is seeing something that most of us don't understand. Most of us don't intuitively get this. Go to verse 11. Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever The circumstances. That's a bold declaration. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now this is why Paul doesn't thank them in verse 10. Because Paul isn't focused on their gift. He's focused on the relationship. He's not looking at it the way we often look at it. What was the transaction? What was given? What, you know, what, what passed my count to yours. He's talking about the concern and the relationship. And so he's learned to be content, and he's grateful not just because a need was met, he's grateful because of the relationship that exists between them. And so he's talking about the power of Christ that is able to help him be content even in the hard times, and he's thanking God that there are people like these believers in Philippi that will have a concern for him, that will take care of him, that will meet his needs for him. And instead of thanking them, he thanks God for them. God, thank you that there are people that will do this. Now, again, because of how we often hear about verse 13, you might think, well, well Paul has learned to be content because things have finally worked out for him. He's finally you know, turned his way, way to go. But Paul's not saying this from the winner's podium. He's saying this from prison. And so Paul's saying, I have learned how to be content. And they're going, wait, aren't you in jail? Aren't you in prison? What do you mean you've learned how to be content? That doesn't make any sense unless Paul knows something that we tend not to know. Now, if you've got your journal and you're uh, with me in week five, I'll encourage you to, to take some notes here. And here's the first thing I'd encourage you to write down. You have everything You need to be content. I'm going to say it again because I know it went past some of you. You have everything you need to be content. This is the point that that some of you in the room go, oh, that's so cute. Look at that preacher up there talking about preacher things that work in spiritual land and Bible land and doesn't work in the real world. And Nobody told him that doesn't work in the real world, but that's great. Preach the verse. Okay. Right? We, we, We start to just... You feel it. You like pull him back. Like, okay, you don't know my story. Now I think if you understand Paul's argument here, you'd realize you have everything you need to be content. When it comes to your finances, you have everything you need to be content. When it comes to your home, you have everything you need to be content. When it comes to your career. You have everything you need to be content. When it comes to your family, your relationships, you have everything you need to be content. When it comes to your health, you have everything you need to be content. Now, maybe one of those just pinged you and you go, oh, you lost to be there because you don't know my story. Jeremy, you don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know this situation. That's why I cannot be content. And I would say it's precisely in whatever example just came to your mind that God wants to teach you contentment. That God has a message for you today that is going to completely change your life if you will let him. It is in those moments. You have everything you need to be content. Paul is saying this in a low point in his life. When things have been taken from him, and he's talking about what he has learned Now, go to verse 12. He's going to double down, make the same case even stronger. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Paul's going, look, don't tell me that, oh, you just never experienced hardship. Paul's like, I know hardship. Or don't tell me, Paul, you just don't know what it's like to have a lot. Paul goes, I know what it's like to have a lot. I have been to both ends of the spectrum. Then he says it again, I have learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul's like, look, I have learned how to be content no matter what's happening around me. And this is where most of us go, wow, that's impressive. Wow, we, we couldn't do it like That And at first glance, you you might go, oh, okay, Um, so what Paul has learned is how to be self-sufficient despite his circumstances, right? Paul has learned to say, no matter how hard it's going to be, I'm going to double down, I'm going to have the resolve, I'll be tough enough to make it through. And that completely misses the nature of the relationship that Paul has with this church. Because Paul is, is, you know, relying on them. Paul is being uh, blessed by them. Paul's not self-sufficient. And so instead, what I think Paul is teaching us is a God dependency. Paul's not self-sufficient. He's dependent on God in ways that most of us can't really imagine, that that most of us can't fully fathom. And so if you're writing things down, I would say it like this. Contentment comes from dependency on Jesus, not self-sufficiency. And this is why you have everything you need to be content because you're not worried about self-sufficiency. Now, the reality is some of us are worried. Now, I want to make a little side note here. If you're with us today and you're not a believer and you're checking this thing out, I'm so glad you're here. You're absolutely welcome here, even if you don't agree with any of this. We're we're glad you're here. This is a safe space to ask questions, to wrestle with this together. But even you, I want you to consider um, if self-sufficiency is the goal, is that goal enough? And how self-sufficient? And how can you prove how self-sufficient? And and do you have to be self-sufficient forever till the day you die? And what happens if this or that? As you, you begin to realize, like, yeah, that's a little bit stressful if I'm just trying to be self-sufficient. But what if, what if, as crazy as it sounds, do we went, What if I was like more dependent on God than I thought I could be? Or what if I like challenged myself to to depend on Him even more? Because here's the reality, and, and make no mistake of this: some of you will never be self-sufficient in your entire life. Truthfully, you never will be. And so if that is the goal, if that is the, the secret for you to experience contentment, you will never find it. But if you say, well, maybe that's not the goal. Maybe I could learn to depend on Jesus in new ways. Then what you realize is you have everything you need to be content and contentment is available to each and every one of us today. Now, this is not complacency. Hey, just stop caring about what you have, how little, how much, just go with whatever. It is a radical shift in thinking, going. Instead of what the world tells me, that I need a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit, I'm gonna shift this, and I'm gonna learn how to be God-dependent. I'm gonna learn how to put myself in a situation where I need God to show up. That's the secret Paul is talking about. Now, instead of that, we think of this in, another way, right? It goes on like this. Once I get that job, then I'll be content. Once I get that job. Once I get that promotion at work, then I'll be content. Once I get that new relationship that I'm hoping for, then I'll be content. Once I get that recognition at work, then I'll be content. Once I get that success that is so deserving of, of me, once I get that, then I'll be content. You see, once I get is a lie that will keep you running on the treadmill forever. And you will never experience contentment. And you will always be tired. Once I get, once I get, once I get. This is the message the world sells you each and every day. And it is so easy. I'm with you. It is so easy to believe it and go, yeah, I just need that thing to happen. And when it does, things will work out for me. And to that lie, Paul is saying, you need to learn the secret of being content. And Paul is modeling this for us. It comes from dependency on Jesus, not self-sufficiency. Which means you can be rich and be content. And you can be poor and be content. And once you understand contentment, you stop focusing so much on your circumstance. And you begin to see something deeper in the midst of it. Paul writes this to 1 Timothy in, in chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great game. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And most of us go, yeah, right. That's hilarious. If uh, you think I'm going to be content with that, Paul's going, well, I've learned the secret of being content. And we live in a culture that has more than most people have had throughout history, and contentment seems to elude us. Why? Because in the midst of all of this, we have bought the lie that once I get, then I'll have contentment. And to all of that, Paul is saying, I have learned the secret of being content. And so, if you want to know what Paul knows Give up the pursuit of self-sufficiency. Give up this, this chasing that we have to go. I'm going to be, I'm gonna be uh, you know, self-sufficient. I'm going to take care of my needs. I don't need anybody else. Let it go. And instead, go, all right, Jesus, I, I want to learn to, to, to see what you're inviting me to experience, to see something different than I've seen it before. Now, with that in mind, let me read to you a quote from the author Jonathan Merritt. This is about Philippians 4.13, and I would suggest this is much more accurate to what Paul is actually saying. Since says, Paul isn't telling Christians that they should dream bigger dreams. He's reminding them that they can endure the crushing feeling of defeat if those dreams aren't realized. He's not encouraging Christians to go out and conquer the world. He's reminding them that they can press on when the world conquers them you want to know the secret of contentment that's the secret of contentment going it does not matter my situation it does not matter my circumstances i'm not going to run on the treadmill of everyone else looking for the next best thing because i know that that is a lie that will keep me from contentment so with that in mind let's revisit the verse philippians 4:13. i can do all this All that I just told you about, all that secret of contentment through Him who gives me strength. Notice the next line. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. It's the other part nobody quotes, right? Because uh, we don't want troubles. We we don't, Paul. Paul, you can't be talking about troubles. You got to be talking about Superman stuff. But you realize, Paul just got done talking about learning how to be content in a situation that most of us would not be content with. And then he is talking about, it was so good of you, I rejoice, because you shared in my troubles. Well, you had concern for me. When I had a need, you made it your need. Man, that is amazing of you to do that. That's what the church looks like. Not us pursuing our own gains, us looking to the needs of those around us going, how can we share in the troubles of the next person? Now, oftentimes when we talk about dependency on God, a lot of us can, can mentally go, all right, I'll depend on God and, and there'll be me and God and I don't need anybody else. And so whatever God gives me, I'm good with. And then the moment someone tries to help you, you go, no, 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 it's just me and God. I'm just depending on me and God. And what you realize is you, you haven't fully embraced this yet. It also means you open yourself to sharing in the troubles with those around you. So that you share in their troubles, and you allow them to share in yours. And for a lot of us, we may not mind sharing in someone else's trouble, but we're not about to let someone share in our trouble, because that's the level of vulnerability. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I don't need help. I'm a helper. I, I don't need a handout. I, I give handouts. I often see this when, you know, we're uh, planning a missions trip, and uh, if, depending on how much the trip is, sometimes we'll say, "Hey, uh, we don't want you to to fundraise some of the uh, of the the money that's needed." And there's so often a response of, oh, I'll just pay for it myself. And now, if we have the money for that, great. But what it shows is we are so hesitant, so reluctant to want to invite someone else in to, to say, I, I have a need for something. Can you help me with it? And most of us get real uncomfortable as adults going, hey, would you help me? Would, would, would you be a part of this with me? And I've seen that the people that get the most out of it and the people who share the most are those who have allowed others to share in the trouble to share a concern for them. It's a different way of looking at dependency. So Paul's saying, Look, I have learned how to be content through all this because God has, has got me through it and God has picked people like you to share this concern with me and I rejoice for that and I have learned how to be content. So, to this, let me ask us each a question. This is a question I encourage you to wrestle with this this week. Am I striving? For dependency or self-sufficiency? Because if we're honest, and I encourage you, this has got to be between you and God and maybe some close people. Am I striving for dependency or self-sufficiency? I know what I'm striving for if I leave it unchecked. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to take care of myself. I want to not need help from anyone. And what I also know is, man, I can miss contentment. If I don't choose, if I don't embrace, if I don't lean into what it would look like to be dependent on Jesus. Uh, When Michelle and I were first married, we uh, got married and lived in uh, an apartment. And uh, I remember, you know, it was the first time we had our own little space together. The apartment was small, but it was awesome. And it was like our space and it was great. And and I remember we began our life together and just so grateful for that apartment and, and just loved it. But uh, we were beginning our careers, and we were starting to kind of look ahead to the future. And uh, Michelle had just finished up uh, getting you know, qualified for real estate. And so we're like, look, we got an in now. Let's go buy our first house. And I remember we bought our first house. And I remember moving in there and thinking, this is amazing. This is our house. We, we have a house. And, and it was so great. And I loved that little house. But, but it wasn't huge. It was a little house. But it was our house. And we loved that house. And a little bit in the ways of that house, we, we started talking about Having a family and having kids and we realize, well, if we have kids and, and have as many as we, we started to talk about, we realize it's, it's not going to be enough, you know, for this little house. And so we'd have to figure out a different house. And because Michelle was a realtor, we had an inn. We we're going to be really smart and we we're going to rent out our first house and we'd buy a bigger house. And I remember thinking, this, is, this all makes sense, and we know what we're doing. This is going to be great. And, and so we bought a, a second house, and, and we started renting out our first house. And, and the second house was, it, man, it was everything I wanted in a house and more. It was a dream house. It was so great. And I remember just feeling so much gratitude, so much contentment, because this was all working out. This was great. Now, oftentimes when I tell stories from the stage, um, number one, I'm telling you one version of each story, as you probably can assume. It's my version. Uh, but number two, uh, I'm telling you stories that have been resolved, that, that, that you know, usually I'm, I'm leaving out a bunch of the junk of the story and getting to the point. And that might lead you to believe uh, that sometimes, you know, well, God just, if, if you're a pastor, God takes care of you differently. Here's what I would tell you. I don't have any VIP access to God. Uh, being a pastor grants you nothing uh, with the big guy, right? So if you think like my prayers get answered more or man, if it, it, things just make sense if you're a pastor, meet some of our staff because it'll quickly uh, help you <laughs> work through that. So it doesn't work like that. And so I wanna share something with you that uh, I suspect a lot of you can relate with and uh, I don't wanna share it because uh, it's not a fun part of my story or my life, but it, it, it applies to this passage. So I, we're, we're in the midst of this season and I remember thinking, This is so great. We're going to be good stewards of what we have. We figured this out. Man, we're just making this work. And then if you followed the economy the last, I don't know, 15 years, uh, you know that something major happened. And to this young couple in their 20s who were trying to be so ambitious and so smart and take the world by the horns, uh, we quickly realized we were upside down in both of these houses with no sign of how to get out. And I remember the shift in this. I remember the anxiety, almost overwhelming, going, what on earth am I going to do? How do I get out of this? I remember looking at these numbers going, these numbers are, are not ever going to work out. They, they make no sense. And just praying to God, going, God, help me through this. How, how do I navigate this? And so here's what happened. We ended up foreclosing the very first home we ever bought. That's great for the ego. As a guy to go, yeah, doing it right. Just lost, the bank took back our first house because we couldn't make the payment. And then the house that we were living in, the, the, the dream house, we had to short sell that house because we were also upside down on that one. And so I remember moving into a rental in one of the hardest seasons of my life and feeling absolutely defeated. As a guy, as a husband, as a father, we had kids by this point, realizing I, I got a shot at this whole life thing and I blew it. I failed it. I've already messed this thing up, and I'm only in my 20s. And I remember thinking, man, other people seem to make this look so much easier than this has been for me. And so I'm in my 20s realizing my credit score has absolutely tanked. I'm going, how do I ever get out of this? I'm realizing the debt that we have is already just piling up around us. And so we had to start making some hard decisions. We moved into this rental house, and, and it, it was a great house, but it was not the dream house. It did not have all the things that our other house had had. And, and that was just a huge emotional uh, you know, pill to swallow. But then I remember we started looking at everything in our life. I had a Nissan Xterra that was supercharged, it was amazing. I loved this vehicle. And then we realized it was all paid off, and we needed money. So I sold my vehicle that I absolutely loved. And I drove my wife's grandma Buick Century, <laughs> One owner, because I don't think anyone else wanted that car. <laughs> and I would show up places, and people would go, what's the deal with that? Why, why are you driving that? Like, what happened to the, the Xterra, you know? And, and, I mean, it was the most humbling season of my life. I hated it. But, but I would tell you, and I didn't realize this then, I realize this now looking back on this season. God did something so profound in Michelle and I in that season that we can now go back and we can literally trace back things that happened in that season of our life to who we are today, the things that have happened today. You see, it was in that season that we decided to start looking at the world differently. You you may know that uh, of our five kids, two of them we fostered and adopted. And I remember uh, early on, we'd get the question all the time. We don't get it as much anymore, but all the time, why? Why would you do this? Why did you take foster kids? Because everyone kind of looks at you like, you're a little bit crazy to do this, right? Why would you do this? I remember one time I heard Michelle answer that question, and she said, "Uh, it's because we moved into a rental house. (laughs) Uh, I don't don't know what that means. I'm like, what? And, And I just heard her explain, yeah, because when we moved in that rental house, we realized we weren't as self-sufficient as we thought we were. And we realized that we were way more dependent on God. And we needed to be dependent on God. And in that dependency, all of a sudden, we saw other people who needed help. And we were more aware of them than we were when we were living in this illusion of self-control and self-sufficiency. And so now we can trace back who our family is because of a season in a rental house where I lost Almost everything I thought was valuable. And now I can go, thank you, God, for walking me through that journey. And I remember years after the rental house, we moved into a house, got back on our feet, started to, try to rebuild our credit. I mean, literally, it was like, let's just piece this together one step at a time. And I remember the last night in the rental, watching Michelle ball like a baby. And she wasn't bawling because she was so excited to leave she was bawling because of what an amazing experience we had had. How God was so faithful to us there. Now the reality is, if you were to quote Philippians 4.13 to me, you would go, well, I'll quote it to you when you move into the next house. When you get back up on your feet. When you start to rebuild your credit score. When the light, you know, life starts to take a new trajectory. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Look at you, you did it. It's the wrong way to apply the verse. The verse applies to the season where we lost everything, where we felt like the world was against us. We felt like we were failures at everything, and God was faithful, and God was good, and God was with us in the midst of that. And that's when I can say, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. And so today, some of you, you're in a rental season in your life. And maybe you've been in it for a while. It feels like life's against you. You have lost all that you have tried. You feel like no matter what you try to do, it just will not work out. And I have good news for you today God is with you, and you can do all this through Christ who gives you strength. You can be content right now in the midst of this situation, when you feel like, man, things are so bad, you can be content. How could you be content? Through Christ who gives you strength. That's how you could be content. And some of you, maybe you're going, hey, that's not my story. I I feel like I'm doing pretty well. Then I I would caution you from the illusion of self-sufficiency because that's all it is. And you are one turn, one bad decision, one season away from learning what I have had to learn is that you are not as self-sufficient as you think you are. And if you've lived long enough, hopefully you've had a season of life that has taught you that. Like, oh, yeah, you can strive for self-sufficiency, but, man, it's hard to keep it going. And the reality is we don't have to. See, if you have a lot, if you have a little, you can learn the secret to being content when you focus on your dependency on Jesus. When you learn to see others around you and you share in their concern and you share in the troubles together and collectively we say to the world, we will not live out this lie of the treadmill of once I get and once I get. And instead, we will live in a quiet rebellion to the world as we model a better way forward. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you meet us here as I know you so badly want to do? Would you open our eyes to the lie of self-sufficiency, to the lie that if we just had a little bit more, things would be better? And instead, would you rock our world with this radical idea from Paul that we could learn how to be content even now, today, in this moment, we could shift this perspective. We could open ourselves to look to you to to meet our needs, not on what we can do, not how we can keep ourselves from needing help from anyone, by opening ourselves in humility. Jesus, I'm so grateful for what you taught me in those years. I would not want to choose them. I would not want to go back to them. It was so painful. And yet I know that in the pain of that, you are teaching so many of us to trust in you in new ways. And so I pray that you would transform us that you would change us, that you would move us in a different direction than the world because we are looking to you for contentment. Jesus, may we find that all we're looking for is right in front of us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.